The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 16th, 2019. On this week's show, Lane O'Neill of The Undefeated will be here to talk about the excellence of Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson and how he's changing football. Sports Illustrated's Emma Bachelary will also join us to discuss the huge new deals for baseball players Steven Strasburg, Garrett Cole, and Anthony Rendon. And finally, Damon Young of Very Smart Brothers will chat with us about the rise of 15-year-old Bronny James, aka LeBron James Jr., who appears to be quite good at basketball and also has 3.8 million followers on Instagram. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio is the decidedly less popular on social media, Stefan Fatsis. No followers on Instagram. Author of the book's Word Freak and a few seconds of panic working on building out his brand. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. We are still soliciting calls for our call-in show. We'd love to hear from more folks, get more questions, whether they're conundrums, advice, Trivia, probably not trivia, but try us, whatever. The phone number is 77-HANG-UP-10, and we would love to hear from you. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Thursday, Lamar Jackson had another Lamar Jackson game. The Ravens quarterback threw five touchdown passes, rushed for 86 yards, breaking the single-season record for a quarterback, and juked the New York Jets out of their compression shorts en route to a 42-21 win. But my favorite moment came in the third quarter with a fourth-and-one from the Ravens' own 29-yard line. Jackson waved off the punt unit and completed a 36-yard pass to tight end Mark Andrews. That was reminiscent of another play against the Seahawks in October, in which Baltimore coach John Harbaugh again deferred to Jackson on a fourth and short. That one was captured on video, and it went viral. Let's listen. If you couldn't make that out, Harbaugh says, do you want to go for that? And Jackson replies, hell yeah, coach, let's go for it. He scored on an eight-yard touchdown run. The plays demonstrated Harbaugh's faith in his second-year quarterback, not just faith in Jackson's athletic ability, though. As Lane O'Neill of ESPN's The Undefeated wrote recently, it was that Jackson's authority was given free reign. It was that faith in a young black man inhabiting the quarterback position was rewarded and telegraphed around the country. Lane O'Neill joins us in the studio. Lonnie, thanks so much for coming in. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. You've written a couple stories now about Jackson's impact beyond the field. How would you say he's different from other black quarterbacks who have come before? What's so impressive and interesting about Lamar Jackson? Well, the main thing you have to understand about his difference is he's getting a chance, right? It is not that you didn't have these type of athletes or people who could have significantly impacted, changed the game before playing at quarterback, but they simply hadn't had the chance to play like that. So now with Baltimore, the offense is built around him. He's been given time to develop and he is just capturing the imagination, not just the scores, the fans, the cheering that way with this stuff on the field, but people love this kid. They love him for what he represents, for his leadership, for his humility, and they love the way he's doing that, that he's, you know, definitely quarterbacking while black. Yeah. And you wrote about fans in Baltimore in particular, a lot of black fans, just like we have here in DC and representation is so important. Can you talk about how fans in Baltimore have responded to him? And your story, you, you wrote a piece about the fans specifically. And what did you do? You watched a game with a group of wealthy Baltimore, right? Wealthy African-American Ravens fans. Now, mind you, it had been a while since I had been to a watch party for a game. I, you know, got louder and more liquored and more (laughs) effusive. But the central premise was how proud 
they were, that someone who looked like them, who looked like their children, who represented and stood in for this leadership and this excellence, was was up there doing the thing um, in a way that everybody could get behind and that reminded people of different struggles maybe they had had. We had a Black Hawk pilot who was in uh, the first Gulf War who was the only black pilot in his class, and he had long been told blacks couldn't fly. So he made that association, right? He was like, just like they used to say, blacks couldn't play quarterback. And so to see this, and you have to be kind of tuned in. You may not have particularly uh, noticed or glommed on to the fact that it really means something to black people to see quarterbacks in these roles. And there are 13 starting black quarterbacks in the NFL Correct. right now. And players like Patrick Mahomes and Russell Wilson and Jackson are the best players in the game, unquestionably. But what really struck me about the piece you did in, in watching that game with these wealthy African-American Baltimoreans is that the embrace of Jackson is different. You you said before, quarterbacking while black, but as, as some of these people told you, it's that there is something different about him, that he is overtly black. Well, right. And so, so we can call it black at a glance. How about that? You know, from the hair to his, uh, you know, I, I crib from, from Nellie Country grammar, right? Everything about him telegraphs black in a way that translates to kids my son's age, for instance. It's the nappy afro. It's it's the, the style, the way he talks, his swagger, that he has had this kind of success without having to change, without having to fit into a mold, without having to essentially be this clean-cut Negro guy who, you know, we need you to fit in this box. We need you to look a certain way. We need you to talk a certain way. We need you to represent a certain way because anything else is either threatening, alienating, or we just don't get it. So we won't allow it. And the fact that there's this white coach, John Harbaugh, who supported Jackson, not just when he's been playing at an MVP level this year, but when he was having some low moments last year has put the whole offense of the team, you know, constructed it around Jackson's talents and has praised his intellect. That's really great to see. And how important do you feel like that is? I mean, it's everything, right? Because there is a whole ecosystem designed at every level to steer black kids into other positions, you know, uh, media, coaches, trainers, everything. Not in big overt ways, right? Um, nobody ever says you're black, you can't play this, but they just get steered in other positions. So I think it's visionary for Harbaugh to have built the offense around him and given him time to develop and, you know, really put his faith in Jackson. But I would actually argue that that other coaches haven't done that is a lack of vision, right? Yeah. It's it's a lack of vision. It's a failure of imagination. We're praising Harbaugh for what everybody should do. Exactly. What? You see somebody who has a transcendent skill set and <laughs> right. you think you should take advantage of it to right. win football games? Get <laughs> out of here. Like, Shocking. why was that not done before? Right, right. And in, in the piece you did in which you talked to sort of historians and academics about this idea of black leadership and what African-Americans are permitted to do in white culture and sort of how it's refracted through this position of leadership on the football field was fascinating. The idea that of improvisational leadership, that you give a, a black person the ability to do what they want in their chosen field is fascinating to us. And look, you're talking to two white guys, but the reality is that black people have been doing this in fields for centuries. So improvisation is a feature of the culture simply because a lot of the rules in sort of every strata of society have been written to either not regard us, non-regard, or uh, to disregard in a way that injures you, right? And so you have to figure out a way around if you want to get anything done. It creates this need for creativity, right? Soul food is because you got bad portions of bad meat. And so you had to season it a certain way in order for your kids to eat it, right? You don't have a an earring back 
and you need a certain look, you break off the tip of an eraser and you put it back there. Like I could just go sort of on and on. Lonnie Bunch, the Smithsonian secretary, talked to me about... The first African-American to ever run the Smithsonian. Correct, who was the founding director of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. And that museum opened with a permanent exhibit called A Way Out of No Way because it's such a feature of the culture that you take something that's not enough and you make a way out of it, that he had it enshrined in the museum. So because this is a feature of the culture, when it works, it gets reinforced. Another quick uh, example I always like to think of is James Brown. So let's assume all a lot of performers physically are, you know, up on stage and, and have an ability to do some of the same things, right? James Brown decides it's going to electrify the crowd. If I act like I just gave it all up on stage, I just ain't got no more. I'm just walking off and shoulders held low. And, you know, my boy comes over and throws a cape over me. And then I get a second win and I throw it off and I come back and I give you more. Well, that. Presumably anybody could have done that, right? But James Brown thought to put it together because it monetized, because fans like it, because he was able to make it musical. So that's the same thing. Jackson is perhaps musical. You know, those stutter yeah, steps. Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. James Brown was going for it on fourth down. Great. The fourth down of life. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> let's say that Jackson is kind of expanding the template of what a quarterback can be and what a quarterback can do. Another guy who did that or tried to do that was Colin Kaepernick. And we're seeing, on the one hand, we're having this conversation about all the best quarterbacks in the league this year are black. Um, there are some quarterbacks that this year who aren't at the best of the league who are, who are also black. But you also have this one guy who is not in the league because he's a black quarterback. And, you know, Eric Reed, who is his closest ally, is a safety, and he's in the league, and he's been saying kind of the same things as, as Kaepernick. So you might think, well, if Kaepernick wasn't a quarterback, there's something about the fact that he was a quarterback, that he was a leader, that has meant that he's not in the league. Absolutely. So already with the NFL, they like to exert more control, for instance, in, say, the NBA. So the protests against police brutality were already occurring in this super polarized political environment. They wanted it to go away. They could come to terms with people in other positions making those protests, but not the guy who existentially is synonymous with leadership and masculinity in America in the most popular sport. No, that could not stand. I, I, I think it, it's causal. I mean, I, I think you can draw a clear line, especially since if you're uh, a player in the NFL, Richie Incognito, who, you know, brandishes, you know, has had contratemps running with, with the law. You have players who domestic violence. The N-word. Right. All of this, all of this. And those guys can get chance after chance after chance. Kaepernick. And even when they play lip service to getting chances, it's in this narrow, narrow strata, which basically is like as long as you shut up. Right. And in the piece you wrote about the fans, one of the, the women that was at that game made this explicit point to you that this bothers her. It bothers her that Kaepernick, who quietly protested police brutality, is out of the league. And she mentioned incognito specifically still being in the league. And she made the connection with Lamar Jackson that seeing him play the way he is, being unapologetically black, in her words, not second-guessing himself, feeling strong. It does something good for my soul and my heart. It's joyful. First of all, he's just a great, joyful kid. But to see that and to see that not have to be corralled or controlled, even that Afro that just wants to, you know, do his thing, right? For folks who understand in all these different areas, we often have to sort of constrain ourselves because folks have to make a living. You have to get along with the, the rest of the world, all of that. Using the example of Kaepernick, again, um, she said it's in an environment where people often want to tell you it's not about race when it's so clearly all about race. So seeing someone like Lamar Jackson, it doesn't even have to be said. Again, he's black at a glance and he's doing it his way. So another Harbaugh-Jackson clip that went viral, and we can listen to it in a second, was this exchange they had on the sideline. It was during some blowout victory. There have been a lot of them this year for the Ravens, so I don't remember which one. But Harbaugh comes over to Jackson and just talks about what an inspiration he's been and how much 
people wa- coming up watching football love him. Let's listen to that. You know, you know how many little kids in this country who were in the rate playing quarterback for the next 20 years? I can't wait to see it. When I get older, but right now, I got to get this right now. It's right. Yeah, yeah. It's right. Start with one. So Harbaugh says, you know how many kids are going to play quarterback because of you? And Lamar Jackson says, I want to go to the Super Bowl first. We can figure that out later. But before the table was rolling, Lane, we were talking about your son, who is a quarterback in high school here in D.C., who idolizes Lamar Jackson. Can you tell us about that? He does idolize Lamar Jackson, and he watches video of him. He studies him, and uh, they just won the D.C. State Athletic Association Championship, and he was player of the year, yeah, as quarterback. And um, in one of the last games, he threw this absolute dart of a pass, and we were asking about him about it, and he had watched Lamar Jackson and, you know, sort of visualized himself doing that. And that is why representation is important. For the same reason I had to see another black female reporter to for that to be tangible to me, seeing black quarterbacks to these young uh, African-American boys who are clearly encouraged to play the sport, right? Just not that position. Now they can get a purchase. Now they can say, wait a minute. It reminds me looking on the sidelines last year and and even years past, Odell Beckham does the one-hand catch. Now yeah. everybody is playing one-handed catch, right? Patrick Mahomes, they practice these no-look passes. And now with Lamar Jackson. And again, they're seeing the same thing that the people, the fans that I was with are looking at. And they, the fans I was with were grown men and women. But these are kids, and they're looking at that like, hey, I can do that. That can be me. I wear my hair like that guy. I want those moves, Right. And because he's young, too, yeah, all of a, that goes a rela- along. There's a relatability there. Absolutely. That It's not that it doesn't happen absent that. It is that with that there, it makes it so much more likely. Michael Fletcher of The Undefeated did a piece where he hung out a quarterback coach in a quarterback's camp for kids. And the piece is basically about how more African-American kids are willing to play quarterback and they're being encouraged to play quarterback and there there are places where they can go to get support for playing quarterback. Lamar Jackson, when he was coming out of college at at Louisville, at least one well-known NFL former executive said openly that he thought he should play wide receiver or was it running back? But both of those options were were out there that that's what he should be considered. Lana, you were telling us before the show that with your son who's being recruited to play in college, he's heard some of the same thing. Oh, absolutely. He's uh, looking at schools at, at D2 and D3 schools, and he's had some D1 interests. And primarily, though, it's people who want him to switch to defensive back, which is exactly what my colleague Michael Fletcher wrote about. It's what we've been chronicling in the year of the black quarterback. It's what Lamar Jackson's mother, Felicia Jones, who is just fierce, just don't underestimate the power of a black mother. Just don't tangle with her at all. Just just get out of the way. And she insisted and had to keep insisting, no, he is a quarterback. He will play quarterback. You will put him in as quarterback or he will not play. I have a quote in there from somebody who was like, she was like, oh, I'll snatch him up out of this school before I let him play something else. But it takes that, right? That kind of intentionality and absolute insistence, and that's where we are with with my son. Well, with your son, does he he wants to play? He wants to play quarterback, quarterback and other than that, he can just be a student because we're going to go to school regardless. And if you trained and you specialized and you you developed a skill set that at least for the level he's at made you elite, you have to resist people who think they know better than what's in your heart, your work ethic, or simply have a need for something and don't take into account your own sense of yourself and your dreams well, and your black mama. So, I, I, <laughs> Well, I hope the first uh, touchdown pass he throws when he's in college, he says to someone, not bad for a defensive back. Right. He, he may very well. All that Lamar Jackson b- video and like you said, Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, it just goes on and on. It's a, it's a great time. Lana O'Neill is a senior writer for The Undefeated. She's a former Washington Post columnist and the author of I'm Every Woman, Remixed Stories of Marriage, Motherhood, and Work. Lana, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 
2% on all of their Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Baseball's winter meetings were good to agent Scott Boris. If Boris is raking in 5% on the DLC brokers, which we believe he is, then my man just locked down $40 million in future commissions in just a handful of days as three of his clients signed nine-figure deals. First, it was Steven Strasburg, re-signing with your World Series champion, Washington Nationals, seven years, $245 million. Then Garrett Cole got nine years and $324 million to move from the Astros to the Yankees. And finally, Anthony Rendon left the Nationals. He's going to the Los Angeles Angels for, like Strasburg, seven years, $245 million. Joining us now in our D.C. studio is Sports Illustrated's Emma Bachelary. Hey, Emma. Hey, how are you guys? Doing well. Not as well as Scott Boris, but doing but my who best. who is ever? Who is ever. Let's start with the big picture here. For the last couple of years, we've been talking on this show about how, from the player's perspective, baseball free agency is broken. A lot of guys haven't been getting deals at all. Even super desirable free agents like Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, they weren't getting signed until February or March. Here we are in December um, the three biggest free agents and a lot more of the biggest free agents actually already have contracts. Why are we seeing all of these deals getting signed so quickly? You know, it's hard to say because certainly nothing has changed structurally in terms of, you know, the foundation of the game here and all of these mechanisms. But I think this year you had a good combination of it's a more pitching driven free agent with Strasburg and Cole right at the top of that class and a pretty solid second tier behind them um, with names like Madison Bumgarner, Dallas Keuchel, Hyunjin Ryu, and having all that pitching where teams obviously usually have more spaces can contribute to that. I think there is the fact that, like you said, the three biggest names here were represented by the same agent. It seems like they were played off each other really well. That can help. And then apart from that, I think just you have more teams who are kind of on the brink of contending that wanted to put themselves in that sphere. You have the Angels with Rendon. You have, you know, the Rangers didn't make one of these signings, but put themselves in that conversation and ended up trading for Corey Kluber. The White Sox made some smaller signings and have put themselves in this conversation. Just in the last couple of years, we haven't really seen those teams on the brink jump in. And this year, for whatever reason, you know, we have. So I think it's a good thing, but it's definitely different. This could just be like Scott Boris wants to do it this way. Like he's been driving Correct. this and he was Bryce Harper's rep and that went until March. Like, do we think that if Boris had felt like it, Harper could have signed in December last year? You know, I think maybe, but I think the fact that he had all three, whereas last year, Manny Machado, the other big name free agent, not represented by Boris. They were playing chicken a little bit, Machado right. and Harper, because they both wanted the the bigger deal. And, and they were the one, only two giant name free agents on the market. Neither one wanted to be the first mover. Right. Yeah, exactly. And they, and they weren't pitchers either. And I think that we're seeing some return to the idea that pitching is not dead analytically or financially. And there's a willingness to give these guys seven, eight, nine years where the impression that we were being given was that it's not worth the money. And, you know, Cole and Strasburg certainly have disproven that. And I think that the list of top free agents that have been signed in recent years also proves that more than half of the top 11 contracts ever given out by average annual value, according to it, the COTS baseball contracts have been given to pitchers. Yeah. And I think this year, even in the little bit we've seen of the relief market, that's even we've seen signs of that, um, which are obviously valued differently. But Will Smith signing for, I think, $40 million, even someone like Blake Chinan signed uh, for more than he was expected to get in arbitration. Um, yeah, it's been working out really well for pitchers. And I think you're right that it's showing that across the board, that's not as dead as it might have been uh, said to be. So Garrett Cole and Steven Strasburg, now the highest paid pitchers ever in terms of yearly dollars, $36 million per year for Cole, $35 million 
for Strasburg. Previously, the record had been David Price at $31 million. Um, and these were three of the nine biggest deals ever in terms of overall value. Cole is fourth, Strasburg eighth, and Rendon ninth. What does that say about, I guess we know, maybe it's not surprising that the biggest names and the best players in the game are getting this big money. Like, what does that say more broadly about the state of free agency? Like, is free agency still broken for other players who aren't like Hall of Famers? Right, because that's the issue here, isn't it? It's that last year we were saying not only is free agency dead because the owners aren't ponying up quickly for the top stars, but the rest of the market was dead. And I think what we're seeing this winter is that that's not the case. Mid-level free agents are getting 10 million or around that much per on an annual basis. And in a bunch of cases that we may not have expected that to be, I don't know that that should be taken as defense of the owners that they're not colluding, but it certainly indicates that the market is more vibrant and markets fluctuate for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I think that's a good read of it. This certainly is a stronger market, but I think like to look to last year, I think you still saw Harper and Machado ultimately get those huge deals, but at the same time, the average salary dipped a little. Um, the median salary, I believe, for the top 125 paid players in the game also right. dipped a little. And so I think those metrics are probably going to be a little bit more telling. And obviously this year, you know, it's not just two big deals at the top of the class. We're also seeing, you know, what well, we had those three names, but also what you're seeing for Zach Wheeler, for Madison Bumgarner, for Yasmani Grandal, Mike Moustakas even. You're seeing certainly more, not just at the very top, but also the next tier. I think the most telling thing will be what's happening fully up and down the board, which it's a little hard to tell right now. Um, but yeah, like all in all, it's certainly much stronger. Um, so I don't know if fixed is the right word, but I think more enjoyable, um, at least to watch and just more interesting and healthier is true. So Strasburg was a really big winner here. A guy who has already had Tommy John surgery in his career, had an amazing postseason. I mean, and all three of the top guys and certainly enhanced their value with their postseason performances. Sure. But Strasburg's been a pitcher who has, there There have been lots of concerns about his health for his whole career. So, you know, on one hand, you can say the Nats would have better information than anybody else about what his long-term health is. On the other hand, you could say like, you know, they, they could only sign one of Rendon and Strasburg. They didn't want to lose both. And I'm not sure it's a great bet to think that this guy is going to be healthy for another seven years. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always tricky with pitchers just because there's, you know, really. pitchers. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> their whole thing. But I think, you know, you're right. They would know better than anyone. They, like, made investments kind of in that themselves with the decision to sh- shut him down in 2012, which was much discussed this year when he finally got his chance to really do, you know, what kind of you could say they were saving him for at the time. And I they think, did right by him, which right. I think yeah. over his whole career. So he would be inclined to stick it out with them. Yeah, exactly. And so I think even if you can't say, yes, guaranteed seven years of great health, I think you can say he's been put in a good position by them. Any of these deals of that length, you're looking more at paying for the immediate future than the back half of them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think you're going to see more of that for guys like that. Certainly you have Cole with nine years, which is, you know, pretty eye-popping for a starter and yeah. The length of the contract and the size of the contracts, you know, still after all these years, and maybe this is simply a function of the fact that fans all are GMs today and we care more about how much athletes are getting paid. But I don't, you know, who cares? At this point, I've, you know, I used to th- be the same way. It's like, oh my God, nine years for a starting pitcher. That's crazy. The Yankees have more money than God. Right. They can pay Garrett Cole over nine years. They can pay him his 300 plus million dollars. And from Boris's perspective, and as long as I've known Scott Boris, which is more than 20 years, he has argued humble that brag. this is <laughs> humble brag, humble brag that I was that I'm 50 something um, and was covering this shit 20 years ago. Um, as you know, as long as I've known him, he has talked about this as the 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 great flaw in the owner's thinking and in the way that fans are presented with data about this. Boris wants to brag that he's signing these guys to the biggest contracts in the history of sports. From the fan perspective, it's like, oh, my God, this concern over how much they've got is fed by this the the conversation. I'm not concerned about it. I just think it's interesting because we've seen as teams get more, quote unquote, smart 
they are resistant to giving out deals like this. They're concerned about player health. They don't want to get saddled with big contracts. And even if teams are richer than Croesus, is that how you pronounce that? It We have seen in the past that teams do constrain their spending if they have a lot of big deals or they will want to trade trade guys away. So it's just interesting to think about, even if I'm not like offended, I don't personally, I'm, I don't, I'm not mad if Strasburg gets hurt and collects his money, but I think it's just still fun to kind of puzzle out what these teams are thinking. It's fun to puzzle out though, Emma, but isn't it like we're still at a place where six or eight teams don't spend any money. Yeah. And have money to spend. Yeah, they all have money to spend. Like in this idea of smart being just cost efficient is, I think, a little flawed when you look at the fact that the smartest way maybe is also the most direct way, which is paying these players and trying to actually win in like a more serious, viable way. And, you know, you wrote about the Yankees becoming more villainous by signing Cole, like leaning into the old Yankees thing. And last year's Yankees team, you know, was uh, in part due to injury, in part due to strategy, a lot of guys who weren't super duper highly paid, who weren't familiar names. And now the Yankees uh, have decided to do the Yankee thing. Yeah, which is fun, I think. Like, it's been years since they signed the biggest free agent on the market. I think we're looking at, you know, more than five years now. And I think it's fun to see them kind of play to character in that sense. And I mean, yeah, it feels a little weird to say that it's become almost unpopular to try to win just by doing the most direct thing in front of you and paying the most for the best players available. But it kind of has. And so I think that's nice. Especially a year after the logical thing for the Yankees to have done would have been to sign Bryce Harper. Right. And they certainly had the opportunity to, and they had the money to, but they chose not to. And to see them sort of, I don't know if it's revert to form, but make an informed, expensive decision is just sort of reassuring, particularly as a lifelong Yankee fan, that they're still capable of doing what they've always been capable of doing. So I didn't want to spoil it, but I got you a Christmas present, Stefan. Thanks. It's a 30-pound dish contraption shaped like home plate (laughs) with a giant interlocking NY that when opened reveals a facsimile of Yankee Stadium with an iPad in the middle that contains pretty much every question you would have about the franchise, from breakdowns of all 27 championship teams to where to live and have your kids go to school. Cole and his wife were impressed. I'm re-gifting you Garrett Cole's 30 pounds. Uh, I was quoting quoting from Joel Sherman. Does does that also mean my salary for (laughs) co-hosting this podcast goes up to $35 million a year? Your salary is the 30 pound contraption. Uh, I love that this was just referred to as a 30 pound contraption. And I wonder if it was just like thrown (laughs) onto the table. But like, I guess we haven't heard as much about the baseball free agent presentation as we have about like the ones for for NBA players. Like was this? Boris used to brag about his binders, but that's not as interesting. Well, there was also, I remember when uh, Shohei Otani was posted and teams were looking at him, I believe the Cubs did a VR presentation for him. Like, like you can see yourself both pitching and hitting at Wrigley. (laughs) At the same time. (laughs) To yourself. (laughs) But yeah, I would love to know more about what exactly goes down there because you're right. It is kind of a black box. And that is just so funny to me to imagine them sitting in front of the 30-pound contraption. But also with someone had to design the 30-pound contraption and make the 30-pound contraption. Yeah. Right. And also to think of, okay, what information do you want, like, about the franchise, but also where are your kids going to go to school? Like, these <laughs> meaningful lifestyle stuff that actually really matters when you're going to live somewhere for nine years. So Yeah, and the Yankees, like, had Andy Pettit, who was one of his favorite childhood players, go out to meet with Cole. And it just seems like, well, you know, this this is, like, the most banal thing I could possibly say. But, like, with Cole, he wanted to play for the Yankees. With Riddendown, he wanted to play – you know, he wanted to be on the West Coast, but didn't want to play for the Dodgers because of their Hollywood, Hollywood lifestyle. <laughs> Madison Bumgarner, you were tweeting about this, wanted to go to Arizona because it was close to his horses. Like these are rich dudes who like are going to places for like rich person reasons or just because they, I don't know, they like the team from childhood or just, you know, not kind of dissimilar in, in some ways from why like, you know, a fan would want to go, go to a yeah. team. I mean, the Yankees drafted Cole when he was 18 years old. Yeah, like I think for as much as we tend to talk about it as, you know, these big transactions, which they are, it's also people deciding where they want to work, which is like, you know, stuff like your horses and Hollywood lifestyle are going to make a difference. Can I have a stable of horses also as part of my package, Josh? Yeah, we'll fit them into the contraption. They're going to be really small horses because we got to keep it to 30 pounds. I guess the last thing is, you know, one of the issues with 
Machado and Harper and other guys signing so late is that it's just, you know, again, as a fan, do I really need to care about this? But it's like really bad for baseball in terms of marketing. We now can have all off season for like Cole on the Yankees, you know, uh, Rendon on on the Angels. Like it's good for the sport. Well, it's it's bad marketing, but it also led to widespread conversation that baseball owners were colluding to prevent free That's agents from yes. being paid what they what the market would allow them to be paid. Yeah, now we can actually talk about these players and what these teams are going to look like and what to look for starting in March versus just sitting around filling the conversation with, you know, whatever dark things about the business of the sport that seem like they make sense at the time. So, yeah, it's definitely a good thing. Emma Bachelary writes about baseball for Sports Illustrated. Emma, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Lene O'Neill of The Undefeated will be back and we'll continue our conversation about Lamar Jackson and how he's changing the game. Kind of a thought experiment about how the NFL might be different if Lamar Jackson-like players had been allowed to be Lamar Jackson-like a generation or two earlier. And we just really like talking with Lene. So we had a lot more to chat about with her. If you want to hear that and you're not a Slate Plus member, sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. And you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. On Saturday night in Columbus, Ohio, Los Angeles's Sierra Canyon School beat LeBron James's alma mater, Akron's St. Vincent St. Mary, 59 to 56 in front of 13,000 fans, more than 400 credentialed media, and one three-time NBA champion. The play of the game came courtesy of 15-year-old LeBron James Jr., better known as Bronny, who stole an inbounds pass with less than a minute to go, then made a layup to give his team the lead a play that inspired his dad to leap onto the court in celebration and also inspired an extremely officious high school ref to hold LeBron back. Joining us now to talk Bronny and LeBron is Damon Young. Damon is the founder and editor of Very Smart Brothers. He's also the author of one of my favorite books of the year, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker, available for holiday gift-giving purposes. Also, in 1997, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette described uh, Damon as a very intelligent student and a very smart basketball player who takes great pride in his ability to learn. It's so sweet. Welcome back to the show, Damon. Wow. Wow. You, you duck in a craze for that one. My goodness. <laughs> I wanted to demonstrate your bona fides for this segment, yeah. high school basketball star. Oh, wow. Damon Young. Wow. Josh was keeping a, a clip file on you <laughs> since way back. That had to be the article for what I signed with Canisius, maybe like a write-up. It was, yeah. I appreciate that. I wasn't expecting that. So the kind of spectacle for this game was ridiculous. And this maybe we can start with, with 
the game itself, and then we can kind of zoom out a little bit. But Bronny's a ninth grader playing on a team with like all these five-star kids. You know, Zaire Wade didn't play, Dwayne Wade's son didn't play in the game because he was hurt. But there's like BJ Boston who's going to Kentucky. It's like a ton of talent. And he was like really good. Like he's been coming off the bench, but he was the, you know, their their best player at the play of the game. And to do that with all this pressure, playing in Ohio, playing on ESPN in front of all these fans with the most famous father in the world is extremely impressive. Yeah. And and just to add a bit more context for, for my own, you know, personal connection to this. So BJ Boston's dad. Brandon Boston, um, we used to be on the same basketball team. Oh, wow. <laughs> back, back when we were like 10 years old, we played on a YBA team. I was actually coached by my dad. And I hadn't been in contact with Brandon for, I guess, what, 30 years. And then a couple of weeks ago, my dad, I guess, became friends with him on Facebook and mentioned that he had a son that was a nationally ranked player and played for this team out in California. And then I, you know, looked him up and saw, oh, dad, he plays on the same team as LeBron's son. So, yeah, there's a bit of a connection because, again, I know we are here to talk about me. <laughs> BJ is a really good player. Yeah, yeah. He's really talented. He, he handles the ball really well. He moves um, really well. But, you know, as you were saying in the intro, Bronny wasn't as skilled as some of the older guys, wasn't as athletic, you know, or as mature athletically as some of the older guys. But he definitely played with a poise that I didn't really see from anyone else out there. Like, you know, he's LeBron James' son, and this game is on ESPN because of him. We're watching the game because, okay, we want to see what LeBron James' son does. And he's out there just making the right play. You know, he wasn't trying to do spectacular things. He wasn't trying to make like the highlight, you know, this will be on Sports Center type of move. His baskets were layups and runners. He shot open shots when he was open. He passed the ball when guys were open. He kicked it ahead when guys were in front of him. In fact, there were a couple opportunities, a couple times in the third or fourth quarters, where I even felt that he wasn't getting the ball enough, where other guys were double or triple teamed and Bronny was wide open. I'm thinking, yo, Pat, he's, he's open. He's your best guy tonight, pass him the ball. And so that, um, that more than his skill level, which obviously is, um, is top notch, his poise, you know, in those circumstances really impressed me the most. It is kind of hard to imagine what it must be like to be LeBron James Jr. and to be expected to play basketball and to be playing it pretty well for a spindly 15-year-old. And what you mentioned, Damon, I think is really interesting. And it makes me wonder whether, you know, poise and sang-froid are inherited. Are these traits that are passed on? Because under that glare and that pressure and that spotlight, I think a lot of kids would just say, I'm not playing basketball. I'm going to play football or baseball or lacrosse or anything. And to embrace it and to, to be there and to be playing well like that is pretty remarkable. So good on LeBron for clearly raising what seems to be a good kid so far. Yeah, he's, I mean, from all accounts, and again, we only know what we see and what we can read, but he seems to be, all things considered, a pretty well-adjusted and pretty pretty good kid. For a kid with um, 4 million and, Instagram followers. Yeah, and as far as your point about whether his poison is inherited, maybe, maybe there's that, but also... He's been a kid that's been on camera right. since he was born, basically. I, I mean, he's been in Nike commercials, both him and his younger brother. Maybe it wasn't Nike, but I remember a commercial where they were dunking on like a little hoop outside of LeBron's home. So he is used to the cameras. He's used to being LeBron James' son. This, what seems so abnormal to us, to, to, to most other people, this is his normal life. This is mundane for him. And again, I'm not saying that to minimize still this sort of poise that's necessary to be able to play the way that he did because there there are a lot of people who have crumbled under that sort of spotlight. And and again, I mean, I, I don't want to put anything in the atmosphere that hasn't happened yet, but he has a long career ahead of him, hopefully. And hopefully he doesn't succumb to some of the pressures and some of that, that intense you know spotlight that other people, particularly pop stars, who had this sort of attention at a young age have. But again, right now, you know, I couldn't be more impressed with his poise. Now, is he the next LeBron James in terms of talent? I don't see that. But again, who is? He's just a really good freshman basketball player. He could have a growth spurt. He could be NBA caliber player. He could not be. Well, we'll see. But, you know, the thing that's really stood out to me this year, Bronny's first year in high school, is just hearing LeBron talk about it. 
and saying that it's been bittersweet for him not to be able to go to the games until this one. He flew from Orlando, chartered a flight to get to Ohio and then immediately flew to Atlanta for their next game. And the obvious pride, you know, talking about this was one of the greatest moments of his life to see his kid play against his alma mater in Ohio and to like see what he's built, you know, in terms of a legacy there and and genetically to see what he's been able to accomplish is really amazing. And he's also talked openly about how he was so affected by not having a dad in his life. He said on Instagram in 2014, dad, I don't know you. I have no idea who you are, but because of you as part of the reason who I am today, the fuel that I use, you not being there, it's part of the reason I grew up to become who I am and part of what he's become. And again, we only see what we see, but a by all indications, part of who he is is a great father. And the fact that this is so important to him, I think, really speaks volumes. Throughout his career, he has made, you know, very public efforts to recreate the sort of family atmosphere he had in high school. You know, and even, you know, if you if you saw after the game, all of his high school teammates were there. And they all were there. They're all apparently still good friends. They all took pictures together with Bronny. And at each of LeBron's points in his career... You know, and he's gotten this, you know, this this criticism for for being a leader of this of this team building, you know, the super team building ethos that kind of exists throughout the NBA right now. And LeBron obviously is at the forefront of it, you know, and he's he needs made efforts to do that everywhere he's gone, <laughs> you know, very public efforts to do that. But you know, I, obviously a part of that is to position himself to be in the best situation he could be in to win the championship. But I also think that he wants to create those sorts of family atmospheres and, and the sort of thing that he didn't have in his household, but he had in high school. He didn't get in college. He didn't go to college, but he has it with his company, with his boys from high school who, you know, now have created this enormous and influential um, um, company and brand. And so every, every point in his life, you see him trying to create, these families, these these mini micro families, and again to and, and he said it from his mouth to replace what he didn't have or didn't feel like he had in his household when he was young. LeBron has talked about moving to LA to give his kids um, a, a sort of experience that would be meaningful and community based. And ESPN did a piece about Bronny. And it talked about how LeBron didn't have this when he burst onto the national scene when he was in high school. He described it as a sense of normalcy. This is about the least normal high school <laughs> that you could go to. It was fundraising with a Stevie Wonder concert when the school opened. Will Smith was one of the founding board members. Scottie Pippen and Kenyon Martin's kids finished high school there. Cassius Stanley, son of NBA agent Jerome Stanley, Marvin Bagley's jersey hangs in a glass case this is like a rarefied place also kendall and kylie jenner went there oh, right. and kevin hart and jamie fox's kids when yeah. they're totally normal right Completely. Damon, just like your normalcy high school. <laughs> yeah well normal for them yeah you know i mean and, and again what is a better experience for a kid like Bronny, where he goes to, to a quote-unquote regular high school and has people gawking at him yeah. in every classroom no. or school where he's just another famous kid. Right. And he could just be normal. Well, I think there's really no, there's no choice there. If you're LeBron yeah. James's kid, you got to go somewhere where you're going to be protected and you're going to be comfortable and yeah. you're going to be in a secure environment. And the family thing is like Dwayne Wade is like one of LeBron's best friends and Zaire, his son goes there. So there's the family thing. I said something earlier about Bronny not necessarily looking like the next LeBron right now. I don't want to minimize how good he is talent-wise, just basketball-wise as a freshman either. You know, talking about his poise and talking about the way he carried himself, that was all great. But he also is a freshman guard who dunks. <laughs> okay. I mean, that that itself is rare. I wasn't dunking in games until my senior year in high school, and I was a Division One basketball player. So he is athletically extremely gifted. And in that game Saturday night, he wasn't just playing against some average high school. He was playing against a school with other guys who are going to major colleges, you know, guys who are ranked in the top 50, seniors ranked in the top 50. And he was the best player on the court that night. So, 
you know, again, I, I don't want to talk about his poise and, and, and his, you know, and all of the intangible stuff to, I guess, minimize the fact that he is a really, really special high school freshman basketball player. It's just that, and compared to LeBron, who might have been the best high school basketball player ever. I'd like to talk about that a little bit, because I think we've forgotten now. It's been, you know, 17, 16, 17 years since LeBron was a senior in high school. The attention that he got at that time was extraordinary. Starting when he was a freshman sophomore, too. Right. By mm-hmm. the standards of media attention, to, and look, obviously there was media attention on high school basketball players in the 80s and 90s, but LeBron was really different. And I think we've forgotten that, you know, playing in full-size arenas, you know, playing in North Carolina, playing at the Palestra, playing in major basketball icons. Playing um, on ESPN. Playing on ESPN, which was not standard at the time. Yeah, the first time I had heard of LeBron James, I think it was 2001, I have some cousins who lived in Youngstown, and they had seen him play. Um, I guess he was a sophomore then. And they came, I remember them talking to my dad, and I overheard the conversation. It's like, yo, we just saw this kid who was better than Kobe Bryant. And my dad's like, oh, he'll he'll be better than Kobe? And they're like, no, <laughs> he's better than Kobe right now. <laughs> like, literally right now, he's better than Kobe. <laughs> and my dad's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> All right, whatever you guys are smoking, need to stop smoking it. And again, this ended up being LeBron James. I'm glad you brought up the point about how massive of a star he was when he was in high school. And one of the most fascinating things about LeBron's career is that he has surpassed that hype, which, you know, was unthinkable 16, 17 years ago when he was in high school because no one had been as hyped as him. Maybe Kareem or Lou Alcindor when he was in high school was as good, but I can't think of another basketball player that, you know, was considered to be as good as LeBron James was in high school. Well, certainly not one that went on to become a mega superstar. Yeah, I mean, and, and even thinking about guys who I grew up hearing about, like Felipe Lopez. Or there was a Shea Cotton who was a freshman when I was a freshman, and he was in California, and I'd heard about him. They were talking about him being like the next Barkley. And there are other names like that that you remember. Lenny Cook is another one that came up around LeBron's time. Ronnie Fields, who played on the team with Kevin Garnett in Chicago. And there are all of these players who had this tremendous hype who, for whatever reason, didn't live up to that promise, and LeBron did. Yeah, and that's not to suggest. I mean, it's it's actually the exception that that proves the rule. Like LeBron was yeah. the only guy to live up to it. And there was a lot of kind of conversation around when LeBron played his first game on ESPN is like is this too much for a high schooler? Should there be high school games on ESPN? Is he being exploited by ESPN or by his school or by, you know, fans? Are we putting too much on him. And it feels kind of like that ship has sailed. Like these guys are going to get hyped, whether it's on ESPN or on YouTube or, or Instagram or whatever. But it just points out to me again, how much is being put on this kid and like, whether it's Michael Jordan's kids or David Beckham's kid or whatever, it's like, it never happens that the kid of the all time great ends up being great himself and just yeah it would be like the all-time most amazing story if like the only guy ever who exceeded the hype had a kid who also exceeded the hype i don't know if yeah i don't know if that's realistic well the hype of damon though back then it proved to be right i mean this was like the right bet to let lebron's high school team play in Pauley pavilion or at the smith center at north carolina mm-hmm. i mean that was like good scouting and i guess it was hard to not look at lebron james in high school and go oh this guy's gonna be amazing yeah, and the only time I can think of where, you know, you had this star athlete and a basketball star athlete whose uh, sons were, you know, given this national attention um, was uh, with, with Michael Jordan's sons. Um, and now it wasn't on the same level as Bronny, but I do remember a game on ESPN uh, probably about 10, 12 years ago where they played, uh, I think one was a senior, one was a sophomore, and they were both nice high school basketball players. I think they both went on to play in college, but they played against Eric Gordon that game. And Eric Gordon had like 45 points. And you saw like, oh, okay, this is, this is the kid who was going to the NBA. This is the kid who is like the, the standout here. And Michael Jordan's kids were good, but they just weren't on that level. 
And again, it is a little unfair, that sort of expectation when you are the son or daughter of this transcendent athlete and you're expected to have some indicator of the genes being passed on instead of just being just a nice player. But that's the reality. And that's the reality that Bronny is going to have to exist with throughout his career. And again, I mean, he's a 6'2 freshman point guard who's, who's going to grow. You know, he might not be 6'8", but he'll, you know, he might be 6'4", 6'5". And he's a guard with good guard skills, great poise, great athleticism already, who projects, even without LeBron being his dad, to be a high-level college player eventually. Well, he's probably not going to go to college, given uh, the family's views on the NCAA. And no doubt the NBA is going to get rid of the the one-and-done rule pretty soon. Yeah, if if he were a senior now, he would be probably a a low-level D1 prospect with his game right now if he were a senior. I guess my one kind of concern for him on his behalf is that he's only 15. And so we've got this level of attention on him as a high schooler for three more years. And we saw when LeBron was in high school, he was ruled ineligible because somebody gave him some retro jerseys. I mean, it was ridiculous and it was kind of perceived as ridiculous at the time, but not by everyone. Like LeBron was criticized and his mom also got him at a Hummer. And there were all these like, dumb controversies that got attached to him. And so I just worry for him that with this level of fame and this level of scrutiny, that if he just does normal teenager stuff, like everything he does is going to be so scrutinized yeah, and he but, doesn't have the opportunity to make make a mistake. But Josh, I don't even think that that's as plausible or likely as it was for LeBron. I mean, because of the conditions in which LeBron James Jr. is being raised. This is the son of a hundred plus millionaire. I mean, this is a rarefied plus, plus, plus. plus. This is a rarefied world. Bronny's every move is, you know, on camera. He's not going to have a lot of opportunity to be a regular high school kid, you know, at this school with Hollywood A-listers and former NBA players. Well, are you worried at all about what this is going to do to the kid, Damon? I mean, I am. And, you know, having a podcast about almost late doesn't, um, you know, is part part of that. And we are part of that. Watching him play, talking about him, reading an article on ESPN, sharing that article. So we're we're part of this ecosystem of pressure that's going to exist. But LeBron has kind of proven himself to be impervious to exploitation and that sort of pressure. And I, I wonder if, you know, we talk about traits being passed on, but there also could just be best practices yeah. passed on too, where he just tells the son, hey, yeah, I've been through this before. This is how you're supposed to respond. Oh, okay, this happened to me. This is what you do in response to this. This is what you say. This is the sort of statement that you make. This is the sort of face that you make when you're taking this picture. You know, and all these things that, that LeBron has learned over this, you know, 20-year public career now, he could pass on to Bronny. And, you know, whether Bronny retains it is up to him, but he has the best possible teacher or the best possible person to model this sort of craze. I think that's exactly right, Damon. And what LeBron James's career has been about more than anything has been about maintaining and creating his own agency, being in charge of all of it. I mean, it's very rare, even when when LeBron was younger, that you felt like he wasn't in control of the message. And it was very rare that you felt like LeBron James misstepped in some way that would damage his credibility, his reputation, his the the desirability of others to have him be their spokesman, teammate, employee. Yeah, you know, I, I think that he should just tell Braun, you know, whatever you decide to do, do not hold a press conference with Jim Gray. Except for that. To announce that you're going to <laughs> different, like, do everything I did. There's some bad Everything advice, I yeah. did except for that one thing. Yeah. Don't say I'm taking my talents. Don't, don't, don't ever say those words before you say something else. Just, yeah, just take that. Just watch this, this special and just pretend like I have one of those men in black things where I could just erase it from your memory and don't ever do anything. I do everything else I did except for what I did in this half hour. The funny thing that I noted in that uh, Brian Windhorst story about Sierra Canyon was that the Sierra Canyon team had gone to uh, China for a tour over the summer and Bronny on Instagram did not post anything about freeing Hong Kong, which I thought was savvy. 
Yeah, very savvy. You got yeah. to take very that. The Sierra Canyon team is also playing in California, Arizona, Ohio, Nevada. They've already been in Texas, Massachusetts, New Jersey coming up. This is a professional basketball team. ESPN is going to show yeah. 10 more games. Other games will also be streamed. We're, we're going to do a podcast segment about each of them. We'll have you back for that. Damon Young, thank you for coming on the show. And the book is What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. And that, my friends, is our show for today. I will remind you that we would be very pleased to hear from you. Call-in-wise, 77-HANG-UP-10 is the number for our call-in line. Send us your questions. I would also like to remind you that our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe to the Hang Up and Listen podcast, or just to say hello, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you might want even more Hang Up and Listen. In our bonus segment this week, we talked to Lane O'Neill about Lamar Jackson. If you could have electrified the league in 1973 and had that be the year of the black quarterback and then had people be able to get used to it as it grew with the league... And then you actually wouldn't even have to have this binary. You wouldn't have to think of positions in terms of race because everybody would be adopting to it. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.